Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. No sooner had the radical equations of quantum mechanics been discovered when physicists identified one of the strangest phenomena the theory allows, quantum tunneling. It shows how profoundly particles like electrons differ from bigger things. ball at the wall and it bounces backward. Let it roll to the bottom of a valley and it stays there. But a particle will occasionally hop through the wall. Or as two physicists wrote in Nature in 1928, it has a chance of slipping through the mountain and escaping from the valley. That's one of the earliest descriptions of quantum tunneling. Physicists quickly saw that particles' ability to tunnel through barriers solved a lot of mysteries. It explained various chemical bonds and radioactive decays and how hydrogen nuclei in the sun are able to overcome their mutual repulsion and fuse, producing sunlight. But physicists became curious. Mildly at first, then morbidly so. They wondered how long does it take for a particle to tunnel through a barrier? The trouble was, the answer didn't make sense. The first tentative calculation of tunneling time appeared in print in 1932. Ephraim Steinberg, a physicist at the University of Toronto, says earlier calculations may have been done in private. I suspect a lot of the history is missing, and I I think it's because these calculations aren't so hard, but when you get an answer you can't make sense of, you probably don't publish it. It wasn't until 1962 that a semiconductor engineer at Texas Instruments wrote a paper that explicitly embraced the shocking implications of the math. His name was Thomas Hartman. Steinberg says Hartman really put his finger on the issue. Which is that inside a tunnel region, the phase of a wave doesn't change. And the approximation we use to calculate how fast a wave moves is all based on phase. It's called the stationary phase approximation. Hartman found that a barrier seemed to act as a shortcut. When a particle tunnels, the trip takes less time than if the barrier weren't there. He also calculated that thickening a barrier hardly increases the time it takes for a particle to tunnel across it. This means that with a sufficiently thick barrier, particles could hop from one side to the other faster than light traveling the same distance through empty space. This became known as the Hartman effect. What he realized is that if I make a barrier thicker and thicker and thicker, that doesn't change the phase of the transmitted wave. And the way I calculate the time is by looking at the phase, the thickness of the barrier won't change the time. So I I could imagine letting a barrier become infinitely thick. I'll still have some finite result when I calculate the time. Basically, quantum tunneling seemed to allow faster-than-light, or superluminal, travel. That's something that was supposed to be physically impossible, says Steinberg. That's the paradox. I think he was the one who really got people concerned. That, you know, after his work, this thing called the Hartman effect, people started saying, how can that be? Or if it breaks down, why does it break down? Should we do experiments to test it? The discussion stretched on for decades, in part because the tunneling time question seemed to scratch at some of the most mysterious aspects of quantum mechanics. 
Here's Eli Pollack, a theoretical physicist at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. Please excuse the reporter's typing. It's a part of the more general problem of what is time and how do we measure time in quantum mechanics and what does it mean? Physicists eventually derived at least 10 alternative mathematical expressions for tunneling time. Each one reflected a different perspective on the tunneling process. None settled the issue. Here's Steinberg again. When you use an approximation and the answer looks like nonsense, you ask yourself, maybe it was a bad approximation. What's a better way to solve it? And I think for a long time, that's what was going on. People tried to suppress this approximation and say, here's a better way of addressing these problems. The only issue was when they did it the better way, they still got a superluminal result. But the tunneling time question is making a comeback. It's being fueled by a series of virtuoso experiments that have precisely measured tunneling time in the lab. The most highly praised measurement yet was reported in Nature in July. Steinberg's group in Toronto used what's called the Larmor clock method to gauge how long rubidium atoms took to tunnel through a repulsive laser field. The reason I'm interested in in ours is because I think it moves beyond what people knew in the 90s and starts asking not just about the peaks, but about how long particles are really in the barrier, how much interaction can occur during tunneling. Igor Litvinyak is a physicist at Griffith University in Australia. He says the Steinberg Group's experiment was the first to very nicely measure the Larmor clock. Litvinyak calls the Larmor clock the best and most intuitive way to measure tunneling time. He reported a different measurement of tunneling time in Nature in 2019. The recent experiments are bringing new attention to an unresolved issue. In the six decades since Hartman's paper, no matter how carefully physicists have redefined tunneling time or how precisely they've measured it in the lab, they've found that quantum tunneling invariably exhibits the Hartman effect. Tunneling seems to be incurably, robustly superluminal. Tunneling time is hard to pin down because reality itself is. At the macroscopic scale, how long an object takes to go from A to B is simply the distance divided by the object's speed. But quantum theory teaches us that precise knowledge of both distance and speed is forbidden. In quantum theory, a particle has a range of possible locations and speeds. From among these options, definite properties somehow crystallize at the moment of measurement. How does that happen? That's one of the deepest questions. The upshot is that until a particle strikes a detector, it's everywhere and nowhere in particular. This makes it really hard to say how long the particle previously spent somewhere, like inside a barrier. That's because the particle can be two places at the same time. To understand the problem in the context of tunneling, picture a bell curve representing the possible locations of a particle. This bell curve is called a wave packet. It's centered at position A. Now picture the wave packet traveling like a tsunami toward a barrier. The equations of quantum mechanics describe how the wave packet splits in two when it hits the barrier. Most of it reflects, heading back toward A. But a smaller peak of probability slips through the barrier and keeps going toward B. The particle has a chance of being detected there. 
But when a particle arrives at B, what can you say about its journey or its time in the barrier? Before it suddenly showed up, the particle was a two-part probability wave, both reflected and transmitted. It both entered the barrier and didn't. So the meaning of tunneling time becomes unclear. And yet, any particle that starts at A and ends at B undeniably interacts with the barrier in between. Here's Eli Pollack again. When we take a particle, we scatter it through a barrier, and it comes out on the other side. This is something that happens in time. We're doing this in the lab. It takes time. So how much time does it take? Steinberg says the trouble stems from the peculiar nature of time. Objects have certain characteristics, like mass or location, but they don't have an intrinsic time that we can measure directly. Steinberg compares it to a baseball. You can ask someone what's the position of the baseball, but it doesn't make any sense to ask what's the time of a baseball because time isn't a property that any particle possesses. Instead, we track other changes in the world, like the ticks of clocks, which are ultimately changes in position. We call those increments of time. But in the tunneling scenario, there's no clock inside the particle itself. So what changes should be tracked? Physicists have found endless possibilities for tunneling time. Hartman took the simplest approach to gauging how long tunneling takes. He calculated the difference in the most likely arrival time of a particle traveling from A to B in free space versus a particle that has to cross a barrier. He did this by considering how the barrier shifts the position of the peak of the transmitted wave packet. But this approach has a problem, aside from its weird suggestion that barriers speed up particles. You can't simply compare the initial and final peaks of a particle's wave packet. Clocking the difference between a particle's most likely departure time, when the peak of the bell curve is located at A, and its most likely arrival time, when the peak reaches B, doesn't tell you any individual particle's time of flight. That's because a particle detected at B didn't necessarily start at A. It was anywhere and everywhere in the initial probability distribution, including its front tail, which was much closer to the barrier. This gave it a chance to reach B quickly. Since we don't know the exact trajectories of particles, researchers wanted a more probabilistic approach. They considered the fact that after a wave packet hits a barrier, at each instant, there is some probability that the particle is inside the barrier, and some probability that it's not. Physicists then sum up the probabilities at every instant to derive the average tunneling time. As for how to measure the probabilities, various thought experiments were conceived starting in the late 1960s, in which clocks could be attached to the particles themselves. If each particle's clock only ticks while it's in the barrier, and you read the clocks of many transmitted particles, they'll show a range of different times, but the average gives the tunneling time. All of this was easier said than done, says Ramon Ramos, the lead author of the recent Nature paper. At that time, it was just a thought experiment that they were just coming up with a very crazy idea on how to measure this time that they thought that maybe it would never come up to be. But now uh, the science has advanced and we were quite happy to make this experiment real. Physicists have gauged tunneling time since the 1980s, 
But the recent rise of ultra-precise measurements began in 2014 in Ursula Keller's lab at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, Zurich. Her team measured tunneling time using what's called an clock. In Keller's clock, electrons from helium atoms encounter a barrier. That barrier rotates in place like the hands of a clock. Electrons tunnel most often when the barrier is in a certain orientation. Call it noon on the clock. Then, when electrons emerge from the barrier, they get kicked in a direction that depends on the barrier's alignment at that moment. To gauge the tunneling time, Keller's team measured the angular difference between noon, when most tunneling events began, and the angle of most outgoing electrons. They measured a difference of 50 attoseconds, or billionths of a billionth of a second. Then Litvinyak's group improved on Keller's clock experiment by switching from helium to simpler hydrogen atoms, they measured an even shorter time of at most two attoseconds, suggesting that tunneling happens almost instantaneously. They reported their work in 2019. But some experts have since concluded that the duration the clock measures is not a good proxy for tunneling time. Theoretical physicist Louise Manzoni published an analysis of the measurement in 2019. He says the approach is flawed, much like Hartman's tunneling time definition. Electrons that tunnel out of the barrier almost instantly can be said, in hindsight, to have had a head start. Meanwhile, Steinberg, Ramos, and their Toronto colleagues David Spearings and Isabel Rassico pursued an experiment that has been more convincing. This alternative approach utilizes the fact that many particles possess an intrinsic magnetic property called spin. Spin is like an arrow that's only ever measured pointing up or down. But before a measurement, it can point in any direction. Irish physicist Joseph Larmer discovered in 1897 that the angle of the spin rotates or processes when the particle is in a magnetic field. The Toronto team used this procession to act as the hands of a clock called a Larmer clock. The researchers used a laser beam as their barrier and turned on a magnetic field inside of it. They then prepared rubidium atoms with spins aligned in a particular direction and sent the atoms drifting toward the barrier. Next, they measured the spin of the atoms that came out of the other side. Measuring any individual atom's spin always returns a basic answer of up or down. But if you do the measurement over and over again, the collected measurements will reveal how much the angle of the spins processed on average while the atoms were inside the barrier. So you learn how long the atoms typically spent there. The researchers reported that the rubidium atoms spent, on average, 0.61 milliseconds inside the barrier. That's in line with Larmer clock times theoretically predicted in the 1980s. It's less time than the atoms would have taken to travel through free space. Therefore, Steinberg says the calculations indicate that if you made the barrier really thick, the speed up would let atoms tunnel from one side to the other faster than light. In 1907, Albert Einstein realized that his brand new theory of relativity must render faster-than-light communication impossible. Imagine two people, 
Alice and Bob, moving apart at high speed. Because of relativity, their clocks tell different times. One consequence is that if Alice sends a faster-than-light signal to Bob, who immediately sends a faster-than-light reply back to Alice, Bob's reply could reach Alice before she sent her initial message. Einstein wrote that the achieved effect would precede the cause. Experts generally feel confident that tunneling doesn't really break causality, but there's no consensus on the exact reasons why not. Here's Steinberg. Again, please excuse the reporter typing. I don't feel like we have a completely unified way to think about it that I find completely satisfactory. So I I think there's still a, a sort of mystery there, not a paradox. But we have a beginning. We have certain things that we like to say that I think clear up parts of it. Some good guesses are wrong. Louise Manzoni heard about the faster-than-light tunneling issue in the early 2000s. At that point, he worked with a colleague to redo the calculations. Discussing the problem at the time, we thought that the reason that it was possible to have superluminal tunneling times was because most of the works at the time were just using Schrodinger's equation, which is non-relativistic. So the first work that we did in the field was extending that this for relativistic quantum mechanics. Manzoni says they thought they would see tunneling drop to slower than light speeds if they accounted for the fact that time slows down for our fast-moving particles. And to our surprise, it was possible to have superluminal tunneling there too. In fact, the problem was even more drastic there. Researchers stress that superluminal tunneling is not a problem as long as it doesn't allow superluminal signaling. It's similar to the spooky action at a distance that bothered Einstein. Grace Field studies the tunneling time issue at the University of Cambridge. What we usually think of as spooky action at a distance is resulting from entanglement, which is when you have, say, two quantum particles whose states are inextricably linked such that if you collapse one or if you measure the state of one, then you instantaneously know what you would have as a measurement of the other one. But that whole setup can be completely stationary and the idea is that those systems could be separated by an arbitrarily huge distance, which is what gives you this spooky kind of not violation of relativity theory, but something that seems kind of intentional with that if you have them space-like separation. This instant connection between distant particles doesn't cause paradoxes because it can't be used to signal from one to the other. Considering the amount of hand-wringing over spooky action at a distance, though, surprisingly little fuss has been made about superluminal tunneling. Field says superluminal tunneling is different. With tunneling, you're not dealing with two systems that are separate, whose states are linked in this spooky way. You're dealing with a single system that is traveling through space. So in that way, conceptually, it it almost seems weirder than entanglement because if this did happen or did seem to happen faster than the speed of light, it would be something actually physically traveling through space. In a paper published in the New Journal of Physics in September, Eli Pollack and two colleagues argued that superluminal tunneling doesn't allow superluminal signaling for a statistical reason. Pollock says they wanted to understand whether Steinberg's experiment really reveals this transit time. And our answer is no, it does not. 
Pollock and his colleagues argue that even though tunneling through an extremely thick barrier happens very fast, the chance of a tunneling event happening through such a barrier is extraordinarily low. A signaler would always prefer to send the signal through free space. So why couldn't you blast tons of particles at the ultra-thick barrier in the hopes that one will make it through superluminally? Wouldn't just one particle be enough to convey your message and break physics? Steinberg, who agrees with the statistical view of the situation, argues that a single tunneled particle can't convey information. A signal requires detail and structure. Any attempt to send a detailed signal will always be faster sent through the air than through an unreliable barrier. Pollock says there's a lot more we need to learn. I think we're going to see more work on tunneling. I believe that the experiments of Steinberg are going to be an impetus for more theory on the work. And where that leads, a theory back to experiments, I don't know. Ephraim Steinberg wants to localize the magnetic field within different regions of the barrier. By doing this, he and his team plan to investigate how long the particle spins in the barrier and also where within the barrier it spins that time. Ramon Ramos says theoretical calculations predict where the rubidium atoms spend most of their time. Most of the time spent inside the barrier, very close to the entrance of the barrier or very close to the exit of the barrier, but very little time in the middle, which is kind of surprising and non-intuitive at all. By looking into the average experience of many tunneling particles, researchers are painting a more vivid picture of what goes on inside the mountain than the pioneers of quantum mechanics ever expected a century ago. Here's Steinberg. When you see where the particle ends up, that does give you more information about what it was doing before. So I really want the demonstration that drives that side of it home. And that's one of many aspects that scientists can look into in the future. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Natalie Wolchover's full article, Quantum Tunnels Show How Particles Can Break the Speed of Light, on our website, quantummagazine.org. Explore all sorts of science and physics questions in the quantum book, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press, available now at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, or your local bookstore. <laughs>